Hi, this is David Frangioni, CEO and publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine. So excited about our new podcast, The Modern Drummer Podcast. This weekly podcast will bring Modern Drummer to life. Sit back and enjoy fresh, fun, and insightful conversations with today's top drummers, producers, musicians, beat makers, and craftsmen. Whether you're a professional, a hobbyist, drummer, musician, programmer, producer, or just love music, this show is for you. Every other week, the Modern Drummer Podcast will feature world-renowned producer, songwriter, and drummer, Narda Michael Walden. Narda Michael Walden's Upbeat is featured exclusively on the Modern Drummer Podcast. D-Drum's story begins in Sweden in 1983. It was then that D-Drum created the digital percussion plate one, the first electronic drum pad allowing for dynamic playing using sampled sounds. Crowned as an incredible breakthrough in electronic percussion, D-Drum's innovative drum pads and sampling technology quickly garnered a large and loyal following. In 2005, D-Drum saw the beginnings of what would become the brand as we know it today. One of D-Drum's decisions at that time was to greatly expand its product line to include acoustic kits, snares, and hardware. And while D-Drum is proud of its history and its legacy of innovation, they want to be a company who could also serve the needs of today's drummer. D-Drum is a company of drummers for drummers. The team at D-Drum is like that drummer who still gets excited when they see a beautiful kit. So when you see the tagline, everything for today's drummer, what it really means is that they make the drums for you, all of you. The Dio's drum line is D-Drum's flagship production instrument, combining thin North American maple shells, bullet tube lugs, and beautiful lacquer finishes. With a highly pleasing sound and warm tone with amazing attack, Dio's maple drums sonically stand up to other professional drums at any price point. Go to ddrum.com, that's d-d-r-u-m.com, for more info on Dio's and everything else D-Drum. This is Nara Michael Walden. You are watching Upbeat our new show from Modern Drummer Magazine, online podcast. And we are so happy to be presenting again our part two episode with the genius, genius drummer and great human being, Billy Cobham. As many of you know, Billy Cobham has changed my life, inspired my life on many levels. And I'm so happy that he gave me the time to talk to me in two parts here. So please take time during this COVID to heal your heart with Billy's words of wisdoms and insight. Uh, all my love at this time and Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and God bless you and God bless Billy. Billy, I, the first time I saw you play, just to just take a second to kind of give you my education for you. The first thing I ever heard of you was Dreams with Will, with Will Lee and the Brecker Brothers, that album, mm -hmm. with Dreams. That's the first time I ever heard you and was wowed by your finesse and what you mm -hmm. were doing to the, to the funk of that, of that band. Mm -hmm. I, but the first time I've actually had a chance to see you was in Hartford, Connecticut with Mahavishnu. And when I saw it, when I, I walked in, you were doing a, it was just drums and guitar going at it most intensely for the longest time. And that's when I realized what genius you, you both were, that you could sustain that. It seemed like 20 minutes, man. It was a long to do, just the two of yeah. you. Uh -huh. And I'm telling you, I've not recovered since, if I'm honest. Yeah. Well Sometimes with some, I don't think I've ever achieved that level of intensity for that long anymore. Okay. But I don't have to. Okay. But it's also, it's a testament to what the mind and body has to, to endure to, to, to achieve a certain level of excellence. Um, that music was tremendously demanding and required 
focus and not just to play physically that way, but the content had to, had to, the notes had to mean something. If they didn't mean anything, then we're just playing for what reason, you know? And music is also a type, a kind of logic. Well, it's language, it's a logic. If you understand the, 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 what, it, what it means, what words to use in, in that particular uh, template, then it's easy. Then you start to think about, well, can I, and here's a great example, can, you, can I play uh, this simpler? There must be some way. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up a few years later, maybe around, actually, it might have happened after the turn, turn of the century, I got the opportunity to play uh, Birds of Fire, Meeting of the Spirits, and all of that with the W, not the WDR big band, the Frankfurt Radio Orchestra. Yes, okay, I've heard some of that, yes. The reason why I took the gig, first I, I declined because I just said, I, it's been done, you know, what am I gonna do with that? But Gary Husband said to me, what would happen if you did it? It was just like an offhanded thing. And that, that kind of caught me. Said, you haven't played it in 30 years. What would it be like if you just did it? And to see where, what, how you treat it now. And that got me going. Okay. Said, oh, okay. Because I've been in philosophically always toying with the idea that as you get older, yes, you, you, you uh, mature, you get wiser in certain ways. And it's, it becomes more misdirection, you know? <laughs> and God knows as I got older and slower and, and lazy, the last thing I wanted to do was play all these notes for what, you know? And so I said, I wonder how I would treat it now. Oh, and the devil got into me, you know? Because <laughs> it was like, you know, it was like just, man, you know? I could change this. I, I, would, I would go all the way back in my head and all the material comes to me and I go, uh-huh, I need to fix that. Or, you know, does it really have to be like that? Maybe people can just imagine I did it. You know? <laughs> and do something else, you know. You know uh, and, and the next thing you know, this is what we got. <laughs> yeah. um, my mind says to ask you, I love your production with David Sanchez on Forced of Feelings. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to say about that period and working with him? I wish I had more time with that guy. Okay. I don't even know. Is he still with us? I have yes, no idea. Is. Yes, uh -huh, he's still Thank with God for that, man. Yes. He is a treasure. But I never... <laughs> we were in some interesting situations, but very, very few. One with Jack Bruce. Okay, okay, okay. It was some of the funniest stuff with Clem Clemson and Jack. And he was like wound up like a like a like 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 a top you know intense and when he sat took that double naked guitar and started playing blues on it we truly and sincerely thought he was amazing and we're, we're cheering him on and he got upset with us <laughs> oh yeah and i'm going okay don't do that, don't do that. I'm, okay so something's going on in this guy's life i just don't understand i better leave it alone if he just doesn't want us to clap or i won't clap there you go not just clap but yeah not 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 getting in his way uh while he's playing but afterwards man it's like come on man. And, and, and he said no went, okay maybe something i with him and jack i don't know i don't know how that worked 
but it was kind of disappointing. Aside from that, he he was on the case, man, all the time. Great, great, great player. When he got the, the first, I, I was like an afterthought for producing the record. I didn't even know how to produce a record, man. I fell asleep half the time that they were there, you know, as a producer. Because, I mean, I, I had no experiences doing that, really. And what, But, again, Billy's not turning anything down. So, okay, you know, I'm going in there. I don't have a clue. And so those guys did most of the work themselves. I love the, uh, the drummer that was on that record. It was such a nice cat, man. Yes. And yes. They're from, they were uh, from, from Red Bank, New Jersey, right? Or That's Johnny. Right. That's right. The Springsteen's people. That's right. Good, good band, man. No question about it. Ernest uh, Carter. Ernest Carter. Ernest. Ernest Super. Carter. Yeah. I hope he's still around. Man, great. Yeah. You know, I just what I, that's what I, I imagine. That's what I, I remember from there. Mm-hmm. I could have been a better producer. I, I just didn't know how to be. Well, I love that album. I thought you did a great job. Well, it really wasn't my fault. They did it more than me. You know, I, I was just like, out of my league, man. Out of my league. It's just something I, 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 wanna, I, I learned. Touch upon, I want to touch upon the sensitivity of you in an album of Paul Winter Consort, Icarus. Mm-hmm. It moved mm-hmm. me. This album, I completely love it. Anything you want to say about that? I didn't do enough. You know, I always wanted to do more, but I didn't, again, where do you start? Paul Winter was so far seen. Um... He bought so much stuff on David Darling. They bought so much stuff on the bandstand that I went, man, maybe I should just stand here and not do anything and it'll all play itself. I have no idea where they were going. That was in the, I think they did, we did a show. Was I with them for that? It opened for Miles, it was supposed to open for Miles and Miles saw all of the stuff on the bandstand and decided that he would open. Oh yeah. And at the, at the Fillmore Fillmore East. So we ended up. I think it was. I think it was with them. We ended up doing it. Uh, we ended up playing with Miles afterwards. But I mean, there was no no place to put the band. Man, his band. It was just. It was almost like. This was like looking at Pink Floyd way back at the beginning of the situation and they would show on the on the LP cover on the advertisement was was it six guys and all of the stuff that was there for them to play and you heard what you heard was recording excellence right no question right but they didn't play all that stuff all this album is gorgeous i mean yeah. we just lived with it it was just, just beautiful mm-hmm. wow mm-hmm. and i just again i just love how you can be just sensitive funky play the right things at the right time this is why i'm really your i'm really your fan i know whatever you bring yourself to is going to be something that is really unique and special so let's go to now just let's go to like your solo stuff which is a whole other world of music i mean the spectrum album of course we know i end up playing stratus uh, your jam with Jeff Beck for over two and a half years. How much he loved that piece. I mean, and I ended up playing piece. your tune. I ended up playing your tune with the with the Frankfurt Radio Band as well. The Cosmic Strut. Yeah, and I went. <laughs> I don't remember playing this. This has to be Nerado. And they said, "Yeah." I said, "Okay." okay. Where's the vocals? You know. Because <laughs> I'm thinking he's got to be singing. Where's the lyrics? You know. Yeah. 
<laughs> Thank you. Sound great, man. Oh, uh, no, really. It was yeah. Yeah. Right in the money, man. Right oh, on man. The money. Let's, let's say something about George Duke. I know you had a, a real bond with George Duke. That's like brother for brother. And your music is brilliant together. He's, mm -hmm. Anything you want to say about George and working with him? He, well, I mean, quite honestly, we were not close friends. We were business associates. And he had, and that to me was partly due to his business uh, ties to the, the Cohen and Cohen and all of that other stuff that I, I just couldn't get by it. Okay. And, and I, was, I was kind of like a babe. I was without the, any clothes on in the, in the business at the time. I had no management. I was just, it was like just me. I didn't even know how to, I, you know, one of the biggest, my biggest, what can I say? My Achilles heel is that I just didn't know how to politic. I, I mean, I was babe out on, I was out of, way out of line, you know, with, with my mindset, it was, it was inflexible, I guess, for the music business. So I ended up on my own, which I, I mean, I, if I had to do it again, definitely I'd do it again, exactly the same way, because I, I don't know anymore. That's not a problem. But with George, I could only go but so far. I mean, this is a, the, that, that, that whole scene, I was way out of, out, of, out of my league with. And he got great, great things happening for himself, which uh, was fine. Um, such a shame that he had to he had to leave. He could he it seems I mean musically alone he was just amazing, uh, and a, a, a strong influence on a lot of people. Um, my my period, as I would like to say, they they had me in a situation where we worked together as a as a team, uh, and I was more of a stepping stone. Um, he had. A big hit record, Jimmy, he, and all of this kind of stuff after me. But it had it really, I have no malice. I mean, it's just, I was just going somewhere else, you know. And so it was, again, one of those situations, like in a way, my ex-boss, whom I love dearly, uh, Horace Silver, when I first came out of the Army, and I played with him for 10 months. And I saw some things on the business, in the, in the way business-wise, that I disagreed with. And he was so wonderful to say, look, man, you got to do what you got to do, whatever it is. And I, out of respect, you know, he couldn't pay, the, pay any more bucks. And I mean, he had a budget that he had to stand by. And I learned that lesson from him, you know, and he did not lose a step. It wasn't about, about musicianship. I mean, he just went on to be Horace, you know, and I felt like, okay, you know, some things I win, some things I lose. I move on you know, and uh, try to make the best with what I have left to work with. Um, because in the end of the day, I got to look myself in the mirror. You know, did you do the right thing? If you didn't, what can you learn from it? You know, and keep moving. You know, so with George, again, um, to get out there and make those mistakes, they were my best teachers, you know, wow. and I look at it that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love Horace Silver. As a kid, I, I love the album, um, mm -hmm. Six Pieces of Silver. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, just, I adored that as a little kid because it was just so beautiful. That guy in well, yeah. Detroit, Michigan, uh, Louis Hay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you're from you were living in Detroit or Kellogg? I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Kalamazoo. That, yeah. yeah, that's where Kellogg's is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kellogg's is Battle Creek. Ten miles is about twenty minutes. Battle Creek. I'm sorry, man. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, 
close, very close. <laughs> I remember all of that, man. I, I remember getting a, uh, an email from somebody uh, in the Frank Sinatra camp that said, back around that, uh, Buddy had just died. And they said, we're going to send you the book. I said, don't send it. Don't send it. Because I knew if I took the book, I would never see this light of day as a, as a, as a, as a leader of a band anymore. I would be Ed Soft, you know, in, in uh, black clothing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I just did, I didn't want to go there. Man. I just, I just saw myself, I didn't, I just saw myself as an independent yes. and I just wanted to stay that way. Hook, line or sinker, man, you know, sinker swim. And, uh, and I'm, I, as I said before, I, I'd do it again if I had to. I mean, because I've learned so much and seen so much, and that's what has kept me afloat. But all even this little period of time uh, in COVID, I played two concerts all since not December, and um, and yet because I was prepared not for that, but my publishing has done well enough you know it's like i'm not rihanna or whoever but to be able to say okay i've got a family take care of the, everybody in the family little by little and we all help each other that's been enough for me you know yes. and and just continue to write i have i have so much music that i've i've pulled together just because it's just something i do you know i what did I hear that you that you were very profound writing some of your pieces on airplanes, flying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, it it just comes to me any place, you know. Um, for instance, okay, Mahavishnu, Japan. Uh, I'm sitting, not just in the shadow of, but amongst shadows, are. Uh, and the biggest shadow is the atomic dome. I'm sitting below the building where the dome is, right? In Hiroshima. And that was the day before our show. And Santana had gone to see, he'd gone to the museum. And I was kicking it around. Oh, maybe I'm going to do this too, you know? And then something said, don't do it. It'll just, no, can you really handle that? And sure enough, I, I just saw a few like a couple of arms and legs and some things that it just went, oh, I, I don't think I can make this. Mm -hmm. So I went and sat on a bench and then realized that the dark part of the bench, which was designed, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't painted. Mm -hmm. It was a, a, a darker shade, like gray, not charcoal exactly, but it was of a, of a, of an individual. I mean, you could see that somebody would, was sitting there or what, and then I, it was explained to me, as I was sitting there, they said, you know, you were sitting next to someone who doesn't exist. And I just didn't get it for a minute. And then when they finally said, that is their shadow that was left. Um, I was speechless. And out of nowhere, when I got up to, I, I looked at the, the dome and, I started to go and catch a, a, maybe a cab or something to go back to the hotel. I don't know how I even got to the hotel. This theme started coming. And that's how Heather was born. I didn't even know what to call it, you know? 
And it didn't really come together. And George, well, I mean, George and I think John B. Williams was on it. We, Randy, no, no. Uh, we needed to do it. It was like a quartet. And Abercrombie, no. It ended up being Michael Brecker. And Michael just came in in a huff. He, he lost a, his instrument was all, he couldn't get it back. Got a saxophone, new saxophone. Gerardo, he walked in, set the thing up. New saxophone, new new reeds, new everything. Selmer, never out of Manny's, if I'm not mistaken, and played that solo first time on the tune. We were in Hendrix's place. Sat, went right downstairs and played that solo. And I said to Ken Scott, man, I said, you got, hopefully, don't lose that. Mm -hmm. And then I probably went outside and went to Nathan's and got us got a couple of hot dogs and some and, and, and orange juice. And he was still trying to make that better when I got back. So and this, I'm saying... This, this is the song Heather, right? This is on Heather. Exactly. Michael, Michael Brecker's solo. It. So beautiful. So beautiful. And, and, and um, now, fast forward to Tianjin. I was in Tianjin and Sendai with Gil Evans' big band in 1983, 84. Okay. And, and Miles. And we were supposed to do a Miles Davis record, a, a, a new Miles record. And at the last minute, they canceled. But we were already there. So I remember Sendai, and I have photos. I have a, a series from that. And of all things to happen, my one of my closest friends, about 20... 14 or thereabouts, uh, says, Billy, you got to check this out. They're playing your tune for the tsunami in Sendai. And I'm going, what? I'm going, why would they? And he, he's not, he's, he's, I, think it's, I think it's Heather. And I go, no. The six degrees of connection. I mean, I don't, you know, I didn't get it. And so I turned it on and there it was. The, the, the water is just overflowing the bridge and, and here's Michael playing the solo in Heather. Mm -hmm. I still, to this day, don't know who decided to put that song to that video. You're sitting next to this, 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 sat this, this shadow. How do you think they call it Heather? I, 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 what I saw in my mind was Heather, the plant. Oh, the plant. You know, but I, it was it wasn't the name of a woman or anything. It just and it just stayed with me. Honest to God, I have no idea why I did it. Almost got divorced because my wife at the time thought that I I was writing this for somebody else, and I'm going. All I could do is just keep my calm and say, "I'm telling you, I don't know." It just it's some things were like, and now this mystical thing, where it's again it comes together. I don't, I didn't, no one approached me about that. You know, it was on YouTube. And I, that's when I first saw it. Yeah. Well, I happened to hear it this morning, just pre preparing myself for your interview. It's so gorgeous. God, yeah. And Michael Brecker, we love him so much. Yeah. I mean, when he, it was 1997 or no, not, right, right around then I was in uh, like 97, 98. And I was at the Hilton Hotel at the Jazz Educators Convention. 
and word came in that he had passed. And I was working with, of all people, uh, DJ Lockwood. And, and uh, DJ, uh, who else was in the band? Uh, was it Abercrombie? We had a thing called uh, String Quartet or something. And it was just play on words. And we were playing in a, in a small club at night. DJ had always had a lot of trouble breaking into New York and the United States. He's like, the, I mean, Jean-Luc owned the territory, you know, and DJ was an afterthought. And so he was more of a musician's musician. And I, I, we, was, we had decided to work together. Um, oh, the guitar player was Sylvain Luc, who's a great guitarist as well. And, um, and Victor Bailey. Can you imagine? And we were rocking, man. Yeah. Um, no problem. And so, yeah, we, I, I'm there. We're playing that night. And word comes to me uh, in the hotel, I guess, in the lobby or something. When I heard that it was confirmed, I had to leave the hotel. I walked all the way around the block. Was it, was, uh, was it the Hilton Hotel on Avenue of the Americas? I remember it so well. And I just walked two or three blocks just to circumvent because I had to get back to a meeting, but I was in pain. I mean, I felt like this is, this is very, very unfair. You know, I mean, the same thing I felt about Tommy and, you know, it's like a lot, a lot of people, I just go, why, why, you know? Can we uh, speak about Tommy Bowling for one second? His family's always reaching out. They're always trying to keep his memory alive. Yes. Really put him on the map. Of course, as a kid, I knew him from the band out called Zephyr. Uh, where mm -hmm. he came from, we heard about him. Oh, but it wasn't until you got yes. with, you know, it wasn't until he got with you that I was like, damn, he can hang with you. Oh, easily. No question. Well, him, I mean, he, he had a great relationship with Jan and Gene Perla, I'm not mistaken. And they had a thing. And uh, oh, I forgot his name now. Uh, Dave Johnson okay. uh, was a great, great percussionist. And I thought, yeah, I mean, Tommy's in good hands, you know. Mm -hmm. But what, what really got me, was that he, he, he was smiling, but he was sad. Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw the eyes and I knew that there's a whole lot that I don't know, you know. Oh, I, I had no idea, but, and I saw you guys, I don't know, somewhere in New York or I don't Roxy. know. You can't see the Roxy, but you were doing. Was it the Roxy? Yeah, yeah. you were so okay. kind to me. And he, yeah. you guys were rocking. I mean, you were singing, I mean, it all, everybody was happy. When he came off the bandstand, he wasn't happy. And I, I, didn't, I said, man, I got enough trouble. I don't know what else to do with this. You know, but it obviously it's clear because when he, and when he got up on the bandstand, he always played, he, he had so much emotion. He, it was all on the sleeve he didn't have. I mean, it was just right there. And it came out in the blues or it came out in anything he did. The notes were absolutely more than right. It, they just represented what he was thinking. And the only way he could express himself as a, as a side to spoken word was through those notes. Some people, most people wouldn't understand except, wow, he can play. Uh-huh. And then there's more. But if you didn't get it, it's gone now. Yeah. What, is there anything that turned you on young in your life to rock guitar? No. Okay. The problem for me was there was a guy named Grant Green, 
Oh yeah. And then it, and then there was another guy named Wes Montgomery. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, okay. You know, and then there was Jim Hall and Herbie Ellis and right. and I'm listening. I'm going that direction, you know. And all the other stuff was like easy to uh, uh, to to absorb, but I didn't I didn't hear anything. Oh, from time to time, I'd hear a blues or something by Clapton that knocked me down. I went, okay. that's what it is. That's that's it right there, you know. Um, but not really, you know. Everything else was kind of cool, yeah. But uh, I, I, I it easily worked with it, no problem. Were yeah. you a fan of Hendrix? Absolutely. I thought he's out of his mind. Uh, <laughs> he he came into it by accident. He he would even if he was alive today, he wouldn't even remember me. Okay. Um, if if it, if we never saw each other again, but I was in a band with with. Um, who was in that band? It was a band called the Encyclopedias of Soul. Okay. And that before that, after that, they changed the name to Stuff. Oh, yeah. And yeah. So when it was the Encyclopedias of Soul, it it it, it was a, a lot of moving parts. Some cats who could play, who could make it. My my school uh buddy. Richard T was was sitting in, in the who went in the same class with me and Eddie Gomez um, at, at music and art. He was playing piano, and um, Chuck Rainey was on bass. If not Chuck, it was Jerry Jamont. Um, uh, who else was in there? And I just happened to, I think Purdy or Spider. Some they didn't they didn't make it. Somehow I got called for. And this guy walks in with a guitar with no, he had no 168th Street Armory, number one, uptown. And he had no jacket. It was winter. <laughs> it was out. And um, it had, I think it was winter. He had no jacket. He, um, it didn't matter. You know, it's like, what did it didn't and he came in with a guitar with no cover on the guitar and and he was playing rhythm um Eric Gale was the, the lead guitar player if I'm not mistaken I mean this is a long time man yeah and like 60 67 60 somewhere in there okay I don't know like this and he we're just playing standards and he started first of all that was the first time i ever saw somebody play a guitar backwards i mean all of that stuff was driving me nuts and i'm going how do you do that you know i said oh man our people were just amazing you know i just thought and he was on never missed anything and next thing i know i mean hair is sticking out and he's just lit and we are grooving it was a dance Yes. That and all of a sudden, like all dancers, I mean you get called for the gig, you got your, your 30 bucks or whatever it is for the night, and you split. But the face stayed with me. Because mm -hmm. I said, this cat, yeah, I wonder where he is. You know, where where will he end up be, being next? You know. Next thing I know, I see him on Ed Sullivan <laughs> or something like this with a trio. And I'm going, hello. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just this is, you know, sometimes. You can't take a picture of it. You just gotta, you know, you just gotta harbor it and say, wow, I saw that. I mean, I experienced that. 
you know, that is that is in, in my personal archive, like standing on the corner with my camera at 86th Street and Columbus, um, coming out my house, go past King Curtis' house, come on the corner in the summer. And, and, and I'm walking, I walk across the street and there, cause I saw this beautiful two door, uh, Bentley. Okay. fifties, uh, forties, something like this. And in it, I mean, what, what, what was attracting, not just a car, but the person driving the car, it's, it's left hand drive. Yeah. She had a turban on. It was a woman. Okay. I still didn't know who she was. But when I turned and I looked to the other person riding shotgun, it was Thelonious Monk. And I went, and I had my camera. Okay. So this is in the days of, 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 of city buses in New York where they, you know, all those. And, and I'm looking at it. That's Monk. And I, I'm, my hand would not move. I could not take the shot. And the bus comes. And people start to get on and I can't see the car anymore. And then it drives off. All I could do was take a click with my eyes. You know, it's that kind of situation. There was nothing else I could do. Never saw him again in person. And I met her in Israel, like 1980, 81 at, uh, at a, at an American embassy, uh, uh, presentation. There was the Tel Aviv jazz festival. And I was there with the band, along with Les McCann, all, a whole bunch of us, and she was there. And that was the last time I saw her. You know, it was like, just th- these things, and I would go, wow, man, because I made the connection. I couldn't take the picture, though. I was, I was mesmerized. You know, I was like, my God, I got that close to that person, those people. And then poof, gone. Were you like that with, uh, like, say, an Alvin Jones? Were you like that with him? No, him and I had an interesting relationship. In 1968, we were on tour together. Elvin Jones Trio, I was with Horace. Max Roach was on, on the same tour with his quartet, I think. Um, and with Ronnie Matthews, and I can't remember who else, Jimmy Marriott, somebody like this, and um, James Balding. That's three drummers so far. I'm missing somebody. I'm missing somebody, but oh, how could I forget? And Buhena was on in the same tour. So it was the, the Jazz Messengers, the Max Rose Quartet, uh, Elvin Jones Trio, because in '67, Train died, and so Elvin, Joe Farrell, and Jimmy, and, uh, and and so, you know, you Jimmy Garrison. So you had all of us on a bus with with topping on the cake, a gospel choir. (laughs) Now, you know that bus was like, what? You know, the stories abound. And this was a George Ween tour. And the George Ween tour, as I remember it, because we went out easily. Beginning of October, 45 shows in Europe. Wow, big, big show, big tour. Shows in Europe. It was a well. I was like, well, it's a Norman tour, you know. This the fall tour with me, (laughs) and we went out like that, 
and did 40, and that's where I first met John. Uh, I think I met John McLaughlin at Ronnie Scott's just before he left to go to work with Tony. Okay, now speak about Tony Williams. What about that influence on your life? Well, how that's the you most bizarre that? thing. He's one of the, he was one of, we became, we always respected each other, but we became very good friends for a very short period of time and saw each other very little. And to the point where I was also very pissed off about, because he died, he died in 96 or 97. Yeah. I was on tour with, um, yeah, so Michael was 98. Tony was 96, I guess. And I was on tour with Larry Coryell when I, we got that, got that one. And I was like, what, what, what they did, they just mis, misdiagnosed him and he died like that. Those dirty dogs, you know, but still he had a, a method. We, we played opposite each other at the blue note for like a, a week. Okay. And that was, that was drum torture. Reason? We had to change the drum sets between sets. <laughs> we had either maybe four or five sets on the weekend, things like this crazy, or yeah, or no, three shows, three shows, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday, five shows, you know, and, and so you had to figure out who was going to shut, take things down last? So, so who, whoever took things down last opened the show, the first show, and then the one in the middle, something like that, stupid. You know, you know. These, were, these were two sets per show. So it was me, and then him, and then me, and then him, and me, and then him. And then on the other way, we'd go around the other, for the next day would be the opposite. So then how, this is my question, how did you, and he back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, influenced each other. Um, he started it. He didn't know me at the time. Okay. But it the influence started when I, I, I got wind of the fact, and it was a great positive. Some some kid wet behind the ears around seventeen years old was playing with Miles. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And then instead of saying, "How dare you?" I went, well, man, there might be a chance for me. If he's 17, I think I'm, I, I was two years older than him, something like that. Okay. So I said, maybe I got a shot, you know. Um, when I heard what he was doing, I went, wow. It wasn't so much. He had, he had a, dancer's, a dancer's foot for a bass drum uh, a foot. And it turns out, I mean, what, from what I could hear, I could hear him on both feet. I went, this guy was a dancer, you know, straight out of Chicago, you know. And I mean, I didn't know where he came from, but you don't do, when you listen to Buddy Rich, you hear the same thing, except that, and dancer, Buddy was a vaudeville, was in vaudeville with his folks. So you, you get that. So the feet had to move, you know, it wasn't in, in any direction. It's the things that he could command. And so did Tony in a certain way, but up top, Tony played played Alan Dawson played played in a way the the economically uh, he chose notes he chose he had ideas on a small set like that five piece set because of that foot you know on both feet really 
certain things would come out that no one else, no one was thinking about doing at the time. And I, I said, okay, got it. It started to get me going because I felt that I had a, a better rudimental base mm-hmm. with my hands than he did, mm-hmm. but he had a broader uh, in, imagine, uh, uh, Im- image of what to do with the kit based on what he had to work with. So he could make, he could make a, a, a small set like that seem like so much more because of the way he approached it, you know? So it was, a, to me, it was like, uh-huh, so he's approaching like X and Y and Z. And then depending on, again, look at who he was working with. Mm-hmm. The other geniuses in the band, right. starting with the trumpet player, you know, and it just, all of this influence is coming and you, you go, okay, he's playing off of everybody. You know, my only big, my argument was that most of the time, most of the time they played up tempos, you know, for some of the biggest records they had, everything was up. And I, I read, I read Herbie's book and he, he was talking about the possibility that, you know, that, that Miles wanted, just went with Tony because he, he had so much energy um, rather than slow anything down. but. Again, it further tr- drove home the point that some of the most difficult music to play in any, any template is music that's slow. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you've got so much air in between the notes. Mm-hmm. And you have to stop and think about what do you do with that air? Yeah. If not, just leave it alone and play the next note that's coming for all, all that it's worth to you. you know, you've well, that, got to be sincere unto yourself. Yeah, let's, let's, let's pause that. A piece like Sanctuary, again, by Miles, yeah. oh, so oh, oh, is that oh. you just, you killed me at Tanglewood Preserve. Yeah. The yeah. amount of space and then power. Yeah. Whoa. Is this, is this the one that John was playing on ba- banjo? Did he do no, it on banjo? It banjo. Was, you, was you, another you mean 12 string guitar? 12 string. 12 string. Yeah, that's right. But he was, he was, he was playing banjo on something. He played a solo on, on another ballad that, uh, Lotus on an Irish string? Maybe that. I, I don't know. But what I'm getting at is that, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, for me personally, mm-hmm. all that speed out the window. Mm-hmm. As soon as he sat down and played those big fat notes, yeah. then I, I mean, what, what he was, what he treated me to as a, how can I, uh, uh, a listener, and in, in I had, best seat in the house mm-hmm. was he was playing really who he was, what he was feeling. Mm-hmm. All of that came through just those big fat notes. And they told, they told the real story for me of who he actually was behind the facade. Mm-hmm. And he, he never showed it that much, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I treasure those moments, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, for whatever they were, you know, whether I don't, the reasons, are, that's not my business. What, why, what I ended up with was, yeah, now you're talking, you know. Um, and, and of all the bands that I've ever played with, um, the M.O. And, and Horace are the only two bands 
I can think of it uh, in my whole career that I have felt like I, I left myself, I had an out-of-body experience yes. where I was watching me play. Yes. You know, uh, that, that's quite, that, that means that the level of excellence is that, is at a level we arrive at a certain point in, in, in as a unit as to how we 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 work together. We knew each other. We need, knew each other on the bandstand so well that liking or personal relationship, all of that stuff, was out the window. I mean, it's all about the music, you know. And when that happened, you could only accept. It's like that only happened in the New York Philharmonic. For its full history with all the conductors, okay? And that happened on the Kusevitsky once, where the whole symphony orchestra actually played as a unit. Can you imagine this? And they felt like they raised the roof of the old Carnegie Hall. One time, once. And they they felt it was all worth it. I forget what what they were playing, but that's how I felt about, about I mean, the, the, the achievement that we had uh, as a unit, because I was coming with, with the MO, I was coming out of dreams and we had talent, okay? Insane talent, okay? But nobody knew what anyone, you couldn't get an answer out of anybody about what to do, how to make the next move, where are we gonna go? What plane should we take? Uh, how do we get out, when we get to the airport, do we have this? I don't know. I don't know. And that's how we played. We played like individuals, myself included. I was in my own world. When I got to Horace, it took, took what? We played, it took 10 months or nine months before I played at the Copenhagen Jazz Festival. And that's on, that, that, that's on YouTube. I just and saw, third, yeah, I just saw a piece I want to say. Benny Marvin playing sax. That's right. And Bill Hardman. And Bill Hardman. Randy missed the plane. Okay. That gig. Right. I was watching, I was watching me play on the bandstand, sitting in the front row. That's, I mean, it was so spot on. John Williams and I were like, like, like Siamese twins. I mean, it got to a point where we knew exactly what was happening, you know, and all, everything just moved as a unit. That's, that comes with time. When I listen to, the, to, to some of the great Jazz Messenger albums, and I understand, they had to live for each other. Right. And so when those cats came on the bandstand, individually they were good musicians. Not even good, but they were great musicians. Yes. But when that band played together, right. you had to get up and dance. I don't care who you, if you didn't know how to dance before, you were going to learn in movement, motion, because they just, made you want to dance, you know? That shuffle that Art has, mm-hmm. oh my God, man. And the whole thing was everybody, you just want to get up and, oh man, you know? That's what it was all about, you know? And that's not easy. That That's the ultimate compliment, you know, when a band can do that. And I'm sure they, I mean, knowing Lee Morgan, <laughs> Everybody had a problem. Egos, 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 egos. But when that band played together, oh my. Yeah. Yes. The same thing hit me on an album called The Sermon by Jimmy Smith. Mm-hmm. R. Blakey playing that same shuffle groove. Oh, yeah. 20 minutes long. Incredible. Woo-hoo. Incredible. Woo-hoo. 
it, it showed me that a backbeat in mm -hmm. jazz is great. Yes. Well, it's played by if it, it's played where everybody in, it went and, and and it's interpreted by the people on the bandstand in the right way. Mm -hmm. Then you got something. Mm -hmm. Then you, but it's it's to get that. Um, the only other thing, uh, groups that that tell me a lot about th that kind of feeling might be a. Uh, uh, Quincy Jones album with you know, with with James and 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 Patty and, and you know all the usual suspects when they come together, yeah. oh my, yeah. oh my, That's you know and and uh, John J R Robinson all that that band, mm -hmm. woo, mm -hmm. you know, that's the real deal. But it took them a long time to get there. It's not about the time. It's about what you put into it. That's the, that's the, the thing about the time is that you, they had enough work to, 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 to sort things out yeah. so that when they really laid it down, it was for keeps, man. You know, that's, right, right. That, that's, that's right. what it been. Some of the bands that were put together at, at Atlantic with Chuck and, and, and then, uh, well, let's see. I did a, oh, I did a thing with Donnie Hathaway and Roberta um, yes. with the strangest band that worked. It's just that everybody knew, you know, it's like we'd all somehow worked together before. And with those two people in front, um, you had no choice. You had to do what you did, which was to play for them, you know, in the right way. Not a lot of notes, just the right ones, you know. So you had, because, because T wasn't available, of all people to play piano, Joe Zavinu. You know, because Chuck Rainey wasn't available, all people to play bass, Eric Gale, you know, it's like, hello? And they got me, Purdy wasn't around, and I, I don't know what I was doing. I might have been a Jim and Andy's again. Anyway, so I just showed up, and we put all this stuff together. There was no, um, let's see, Eric and, uh, oh, I forget his name now, using the Blues Brothers too, guitar player. Okay. Smoke a pipe, can't remember. Okay. Um, but anyway, that whole scene and that tune just just whew, no question so easy to do uh, with two incredible voices like that um the the positiveness of everything you can't well you should not miss it depends if you miss then there's something wrong with you i mean you, you know you shouldn't be there was this produced by arif mardin and Joel Dorn. Got it. Okay. Don't forget it. Joel. Okay. Oh, okay. he would turn over in his grave. Let's not go there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, my. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of producers, engineers, I want you to say just something about Ken Scott, because the sound mm -hmm. that you two got together was just phenomenal. Anything you want to say about Ken? I love that guy. Um, he... He is as a as a very unique personality, um, beyond understanding a lot of things I didn't understand, and and that again is just because I didn't understand nothing bad. On the other hand, I did not do him right. Um, there was a point in my career where he was. We had agreed that he would co-produce the recordings with me. And I got into a thing again with management 
where I had to get out of Dodge. And I, I mean, the, the only way I can do it is just to be frank and straight. And so about, and I had nothing else but to hold on to my royalties and get out because I wasn't getting help from anyone, anyone on any level. I was persona non grata in many different ways, probably more you know than I do. And so I just got out and the rest be damned. I didn't see, I didn't see Ken from, God, 19, 1976 maybe until 1990s or something like this. Ah, I was working, the next time I saw Ken Scott, I'm pretty sure it would have been 1990, for sure, but 1994 on a, on a tour with Stanley Clark and, and uh, uh, guitar players, and I name I forgot now. But we were on the West Coast, and that's where I saw Ken. And of course he was upset with me, you know. And, but nothing in, in like rancor, rancor, rancor. We ended up doing something that I just dedicated to him. He wanted to sample my uh, drum sounds and all of this. And I was only too happy to do that. It's a small thing to do. Um, but I, I moved out of the United States um, from that point and just decided to rebuild my life. And I needed whatever was coming in to survive. Right, and I mean, I think the, the main thing is, uh, I mean, declare, be clear about everything when I, when I say it, because that guy was an, uh, Ken Scott's an unbelievable genius. And I was, I was really, really, really um, fortunate yeah. to, to uh, have been able to have his services uh, for, for those, for those recordings, not just two, but more than that. I think he recorded at least everything up to, to, uh, life and times. I think, I think we did. Yeah. Shabazz life and times crosswinds, uh, total eclipse about five records. Wow. I know it's a lot of music, you know, but most of, at the time, most of those records, <laughs> as a matter of fact, the spectrum album, Nothing was, was airmarked to come out past an LP. And CDs were coming out and all of that. My records were never to be found until, I, until somebody came to see me around 1991 with a Spectrum CD for the first time. All my other the records were coming out on a label called Wounded Bird. Right. Which was like really, again, another political move. Yeah. And yeah, they wanted to make money, but they didn't want to, sh whatever, you know, I just didn't know the right people. So I know that game, you know, but you know, when it, when it's all about reality and truth, fundamentally, sometimes that whole thing tends to work itself out and I'm still here. I'm just doing what I have to do. I heard from Will Lee. He asked me to ask you if you have any of the demos that you guys recorded for your spectrum. There are about four or five things he played on. There were early things. Do you know about that? Um, yeah. The problem is, is that the, the tapes are no longer. I mean, the, I have tapes that I would love to hear, yeah, man. Sure, sure. Um, but I can't anymore. Yeah. I mean, I used to get paid by Dave David Baker, great engineer who passed away. Yeah. On those tapes, in his in David's house, out of that house. We, we used to, because most of us weren't working and I was living in the village. And I think Wayne was living in, in Weehawken or Newark, New Jersey. Um, his brother was still alive. Uh, 
Joe was living somewhere uptown uh, 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 on the west side. McLaughlin was living on the west side, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there was a lot of transitional things happening. And so I ended up with Coriel, of course, Miroslav. Right. Um, I was invited by Miroslav to come over to David Baker's place. David Baker had just acquired with, uh, with a loan, if I'm not mistaken, from his dad, a Scully 12-track multi-track tape recorder of which he put in his bedroom. He had one of these brownstone house uh, apartments. So he put that in the bedroom and, and some of his other things for his. And then, like, I ended up in the kitchen and they had to move the, we had to move the table and that's the drum set. I had this drum set that you could fit the toms inside the bass drum, inside the tom. And, and then, so that was one thing. And then I had a, a trap case with the cymbals and the uh, snare drum in it and the seat. Okay. So I could come and sit in the kitchen and play and set the stuff up and play. Mm-hmm. And then in the bathroom, Wayne was playing tennis saxophone. Um, Joe was also in the bedroom because it was, it was direct. So all of this was going on just to see how we sounded. Coriel, 11th House came out of there. The beginnings of Mahavishnu came out of there. The uh, and and weather report came out of there. Wow. You, you know, wow. and and Miroslav was playing in the hallway, upright bass, and 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 behind a like a I'm not sure behind a uh, a mattress just to <laughs> cover up the bass. It was a, that kind of situation. The mattress was wide enough so you didn't have to see him, but you could feel it. You know, and that all there's a I have at the end they would just give us get give us a a, a recording, a recorded two track of everything that happened that day. And I didn't care about money. I mean, it was like, what a, you know, it's, I kept those tapes until I couldn't keep them anymore. They went to Panama and I tried and it was long gone, man. We're talking, oh God, in 1969, uh, quarter inch uh, tape, come on. You know, that's right. That's right. Scotch, no way, no way. No. So this interview we're doing is uh, a, in partnership with Modern Drummer, and you are now a legend. Of course, you're a legend, number one drummer. But they're honoring you now with a book and all that. How do you feel about Modern Drummer and them honoring you as legend and all with a book? It's rare, okay, that I have worked <clears throat> with anyone from Modern Drummer. Um, so any opportunity is okay. You know I mean? I, it's just ships passing in the night. They have to cater to so many people. You know, I don't expect, and I'm never expecting, especially being outside of the shores of the United States, as I've learned more than once or twice, that once you leave the United States, you're dead. You know, I mean, literally people called and find, to find out if I was still alive because they heard that I passed away and they sent flowers. This is Ahmed and Nesvi Erdogan. I mean, they, they've done this. Yeah, yeah. We heard that he died. And what? What are you talking about, man? Yeah. And it, 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 it's like, you know, I just chuckle and I go, yeah, I mean, you, the U.S. is huge. It fits Western Europe inside it, you know. It's this kind of thing. So. I, I get it, you know, and it, I mean, it's no, it's, it's easy to, 
to be on the outside of, of cliques of, of groups of people who feel comfortable working with one another. And it's, a, it's, it's, def, it's really that kind of situation. You just can't be every place at once. And some things that you may choose to, to do, some people that you choose to work with uh, just may not be possible. You know, it's just just the way life is. You know? yeah. So you just take it and you keep going. That's all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm here to represent massive love for you on behalf of all the drummers in the world, especially the modern drummer, because they are like, there's, they know about this interview we're doing today. And they're very- Is that right? Y'all, so yeah, it's not as big this, a secret as I thought. Speaking is a, is a big <laughs> deal, man. This is a big deal. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. All right. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let me ask well, one last question because I want to wrap it with you. Um, for all the people in the world who want to be influenced and, and know what it feels like on, from you, when you fly high playing, which you do all the time with your passion, is there any way that people who don't even play drums can, can feel that, can tap into that? Something you could say or inspire them for the future going forward as a humanity that you can give to tell people how oh, we can stay high like you do when you play your drum. We look at you, we say, he's high. How can we be high? Michael, come on, man. <laughs> go, 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 go. Get him, get him, get him. You need to get calm him, get down. Him, get him. <laughs> what is that? Get him, you know, get him. I mean, I can't, I, I can't do this. I am not Larry King. I will not do this. I refuse. There's only one Larry King. Okay. You know, he can't do it. He tried it. Look at what it got him. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> no, I seriously, no. I'm just me. Uh, I I I love keeping as low a profile as I possibly can within reason. Um, respect my fellow man as best I can. Be honest to myself as much as possible, and I will still lie. I know it. I know it. Somewhere down the line, I'm going to say something stupid. So you know, it is. It is. This is the this is what you get, you know, and I'm I'm just trying to, especially now at 76. Ah, oh, now I understand what my folk, my dad is went through because I'm getting all of that. My mom, you know, they they've got had their ups and downs, but I, I get it, I get it. And the whole objective is to just, uh, they said mess, they left a message in, in in the way that they had to deal with it, and it's just it's re- to deal with it head on take life as it comes and try to make the best of it you possibly can. Um, and if you come short, if come up short, that's the best you can do as long as you, you're sincere to yourself. I can't do any more, man. That's right, brother. Mm-hmm. We love you, Bill. You, you've given so much and you give so much. And I'm not like a wall here to tell you, you set the bar so high, brother, that we are still in awe of what you have done and what you do. So I can just well, thank you, you so much. Yeah, yeah. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah. Really appreciate yeah. it. Well, say, say don't, just uh, to the whole world, thank you. It's been a pleasure uh, all these years. I never want to do it. Um, I, I, I can't change it. I mean, if I had to do it again, probably I'd do the same thing. It's just nice the way it is. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay? All right. Give my love to your family. And I'm just happy you gave us time today, Billy. Thank you so much. Well, well, well. I know you enjoyed watching the wonderful, wonderful interview with the great genius Billy Cobham on Narda Show Upbeat, and I thank you for your time and your energy and your open-heartedness. And as you go forward through Christmas and New Year's from next year, take these great words of Billy's and apply them into your life. All the love in the world from your brother, Narda Michael Walden. God bless you and love you. And stay tuned to our show, Upbeat. Bye-bye.
Hello, everybody. I'm David Frangioni, and my guest today is Gary Ingrafia from D-Drum, and he's going to share with us all the exciting things that D-Drum is up to. How great to have you here today. Welcome, Gary. Great to be here. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great. Thank you, Gary. So, Gary, you're back at D-Drum. What's the latest happening with D-Drum? Go deep on us. Give us the latest and greatest in these products. All the drummers out there want to hear all the juicy details straight from the source. So, hey, I appreciate the question, David. Um, as most people know, maybe they don't know, you know, we've had the Dios uh, Maple line in place. Uh, it was, uh, it came out, I believe, in the mid 2000s, um, went away, and then it was brought back a few years ago which is a beautiful uh, lacquered finish maple kit that if you go to either ddrum.com or the ddrum's YouTube page, or even on Modern Drummer, you'll start to see how these drums sound. It's an amazing, amazing maple kit. Um, and that's that the other top of your right line. Right now, um, our flagship maple kit. Uh, that's your flagship. One more time, David. That's your flagship. It is the flagship right now. Okay, awesome. And yes, I've sir, heard the DOS line is... They are amazing. Um, and then from there, uh, we do have the D-Drum Dominion line, another line that was, uh, when I was here last time, was a huge, huge hit in the industry. We, um, we really hit a home run with that back in the, uh, in the late 2000s. And that has come back with new mounting system, uh, old birch shells instead of maple this time. Um, and that is another amazing sounding drum set. I mean, some of the things, um, the simple changes that are made with, with brackets being moved and mounting system shifting. And uh, there's a lot of guys out there that know that the positioning, just the positioning of a tom on a tom arm changes the resonance of the drum, either the, on the top of the rod or middle of the rod. A lot of drummers out there might not know that, but if you, um, it's one of the things we focused on with Dominion, especially with the, with the mount and the bass drum, that it's clear that the positioning needs to be in certain places. So we're really focused with these two lines on focusing on 100% what the drums sound like. They happen to look great too, but the drums sound incredible. So we're excited about that. Um, this year, uh, we've just released a new um, entry level kit, the D2 line. Um, uh, D2, uh, once again, was uh, very, very popular over the last several years. Um, and now we've upgraded it with a uh, new double tom holder, which is fully adjustable. Um, uh, new badges, new wraps, the shells are great. Um, and I mean, I think the price point in the market is $3.99, which is crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. Incredible sounding that's, drum kit. Well, that's uh, a great for, Christmas gift for the up and coming drummer. Yeah, it, it would be. Uh, hopefully you can get out there and find some because they were like hotcakes when they came in. So, um, <laughs> go and find some. <laughs> that's a good problem to have. But that's an awesome um, and also, price. You know, one of the, it's a ridiculous price point. Yeah. One of the, um, one of the series that often kind of, I wouldn't say gets overlooked, but um, we have a series called the Max series, which is a blended shell between maple and alder. Alder, as you guys know, I mean, in the industry, alder has been used for guitar bodies for forever. Uh, and it is a, a very resonant, uh, unique sounding wood. So this drum set, in fact, Carmine Peace, he absolutely loves the Mac series drums because it kind of combines the qualities of, of a cutting, like a, of a birch 
and the, obviously the qualities of maple. So you have a very unique attack and an overtone that's kind of like maple, but it's definitely a little warmer than that. So it's, it's an amazing sounding drum set, the Max series. So we're going to do some things with that going forward as well and seeing how we can tweak that. And also, let's be honest, telling the story of, of Alder um, and telling the story of the sound of the drums is important because uh, and modern drummer has been around a long time. I unfortunately have been around a very long time as well. And um, uh, drummers tend to gravitate towards what they know. They gravitate towards maple, they gravitate towards birch. And once in a while, some other woods creep in like beach. And, uh, but when you start seeing uh, woods that they're not familiar with, like some companies use some, some woods that um, uh, I can't even pronounce uh, and drummers tend to, oh, you know, I, I don't want to go near that. So breaking in a new wood type into a drum line uh, is pretty difficult to do. Uh, because to them, it just sounds like, oh, they've, they're, they're just using some filler wood along with uh, maple. But that's not the truth. There's a conscious decision made to use alder in these drums. So um, guys need to check that stuff out. Uh, the Max Series kits are amazing sounding drums as well. So Gary, tell us about the future of D-Drum, starting with your arrival there and what things are going to look like as it goes forward. Thanks. I, I appreciate you giving the opportunity to talk about it. So, you know, I was with D-Drum more than 10 years ago here in uh, the late 2000s. Uh, left, went and did other things for other companies. And now I'm back here again um, with the help of, you know, Evan Rubinson, who's running the, running Armadillo Enterprises here. That's, you know, there's Dean Guitars and Luna ukuleles and guitars under the same roof. And um, he was uh, looking to move the brand to another level. I mean, the brand is doing well. Um, but he wanted to step it up. So he reached out, uh, we discussed some things and decided to come on board, which was great. So some of the great stuff that's going on uh, here, we have a product development uh, and a product roadmap that I'm, I'm putting into place here to really take the brand to the next level. Now, D-Drum has always been a great brand with great products, um, value products, uh, products as far as bang for the buck goes, even on the high-end stuff. If you see some of the Dios uh, performances and uh, the Dominion series, which is an all bird series, amazing sounding drums. Um, and then when you look at the price point, you scratch your head and, and you say, how, how have they put together such great drums at this price? So what I'd like to do now is take everything that we've been doing and move it forward. So um, to really start tweaking some of the stuff that's in existence right now, configurations and maybe some missions of uh, sizes. Um, you know, we've been known for large um, extended bass drums, and I think we'll still keep them in the mix. But we are, you know, as everybody knows, the trend these days is shorter bass drums. Uh, it went from 18 being standard to now 16 and 14 is the standard in the industry. So making some of those changes going forward, uh, coming out with a couple of new higher end drum lines from the ground up, which is something that I think is gonna be very exciting for the brand, um, developing uh, new shell concepts, new lugs and mounting systems, um, and really taking the brand uh, to the next step because uh, even though the brand has been a steady, uh, uh, a steady force in the industry for the last, since 1983, starting with the, uh, you know, everybody knows that 
Deidre was known for the electronics back in the 80s um, at the time, the only electronic drum set that was considered by professionals a go-to for that. Um, so we've gotten away from that in recent years, um, but we're going to get back to that as well. So uh, what we really want to do is have people turn their heads and say, oh, okay, there's something going on there. They've got their stuff together. They're moving forward. And we're excited about it. I mean, um, thank goodness uh, with the management we have here, uh, I have kind of an open palette to do what I think is going to move the brand. Um, and that's, I mean, since... I came here to the office uh, every day has been focused on moving us to the next level. Well, it's just, it's so great to hear that things are going so well at D-Drum. Gary and Grafia, thank you for joining us today. Modern drummer listeners out there, check out ddrum.com. Check out this entire line of drums from, you know, the D2 at $399 all the way up to their Pro Dio series and everything in between. Uh, just exciting stuff. Got to check it out. And thank you again, Gary. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it so much. Now it's time for the shop talk section. This is Mike Dawson, managing editor for Modern Drummer. And this week we are going to take a look at the Rogers Covington series uh, that I reviewed in the magazine back in the November issue. Uh, the one with Kevin Parker on the cover, if you have your copy, if you want to follow along. So Rogers is a classic name in American drum manufacturing. I'm sure you've heard of it, but they made a revival this past year uh, with some brand new drums under the Rogers name. I got a chance to put my hands on a set of these beauties. And what I got for review was a six and a half by 14 Dynasonic and then a shell pack with an eight by 12 toms, 14 by 14 floor tom and a 14 by 20 bass drum in a really cool red ripple wrap finish. So if you're going to check out the video version of this podcast, I'm going to drop in the demo video of the kit in a minute. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what this kit is. So I, I have a vintage Rogers kit and it's one of my favorite kits for recording and gigging. It's a, um, of all the vintage drums that I have and I've played, I feel like Rogers is the perfect middle ground of, you know, fat vintage warmth plus kind of modern, a little bit more edgy, punchy snap. It's kind of like a, um, if you think of Gretsch as being the punch, punchiest version of a vintage drum and like Ludwig or Slingerland being the fattest, warmest sound. I feel like it's right in the middle of that, which ends up being perfect for pretty much any situation. Um, now here's what's cool about the new shells, the new kits, everything about them is they have spec them out to be pretty much spot on replicas of the vintage kits from the 50s and 60s. So if you put a kit, this kit next to an old kit, I think you'd have a hard time figuring out which one was a vintage kit other than the everything is just perfectly brand new. So what you get is a five-ply shell that is maple and poplar, and it has reinforcement rings. The interiors are sealed with the classic Rogers fruit wood colored stain. It gives a little bit of an orangish hue, but you can still see the natural wood grain. Very cool. And then um, what they're doing is they're heat bending the shells, which they say gives it you know, ages it, gives it a more vintage sound. Whatever it does, these drums sound exactly like my old Rogers drums. I had the my vintage drum, 12-inch tom, tuned up right next to the Covington drum, played them side by side. I could not hear a distinguishable difference between the two. Pretty impressive. So um, anyway, let's drop in the, the video demo here. So you're going to hear me play this kit 
I think it's wide open. Um, the bass drum had a couple of the, what do they call these things? They're like moon gels for bass drums. Um, but that's the only thing that was on it. Everything else is wide open. So you hear me play it, you know, high and tight. And then I just start to mess around with the tunings. Um, no other muffling or crazy treatments. Um, these are super inspiring drums. I don't say that often about kits, but this was one where I just felt like I could have played for hours and hours. It just feels really good. It gives you a lot of response with a nice big punchy tone, nice and clear and articulate. So anyway, here's the Rogers Covington kit. If you want to read more about it, check out the November issue of Modern Drummer, and we will see you next week. Thank you, everybody, for watching this week's Modern Drummer Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode exclusively on Podcast One. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening and watching.